From the heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer. Remember what happened as the 14th draws near. Hit him once. Hit him twice. Cancel the dancer, it'll happen thrice. It's a madman, as eloquent with words as he is with a pickaxe. We're still up all night, and this episode, we watched My Bloody Valentine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Aranda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to a special Halloween edition of Still Up All Night, the podcast that celebrates the So Bad They're Good films of USA Up All Night. I'm Travis Yates, and this episode, we're heading north of the border for the 1981 Canadian slasher film, My Bloody Valentine. But first, I'm joined by our resident horror genre expert. That's right, it's Christmas time for my co-host, Rob Cady. So, Rob, or should I say, Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Absolutely, and I love that we are, in honor of Halloween, reviewing a Valentine's Day movie. Yeah, (laughs) which we'll explain why here in just a bit. But first, I have to ask, Rob, every year you do your 31 Days of Horror film reviews on Twitter. How's it going this year? I guess you're just wrapping up now. Yeah, I'm I'm in the, you know, in the trenches at this point where it's, it's, the energy is starting to fade because 31 movies, 31 days and 31, even though they're, they're mini reviews, it's still, you know, reviews to be done. I'm, I'm, I'm bogging down and, and, uh, feeling it, feeling the burn, as they say. <laughs> Grinding to the end. I think, I think maybe though it's, it's been generally one of the, the better ones I've had in terms of the overall movies I've watched. It, it feels like there've been, fewer than past years that I did not enjoy. I've, I've found something in, in just about all of them that I've been able to, to hang on to and, and appreciate. So it's, it's been pretty good. And remind our listeners again what your personal Twitter handle is in case they want to check out some of those reviews. It's just RobKady1, R-O-B-C-A-D-Y-1. And uh, you usually go about three threads deep, three posts deep, don't you, into each film. Oh, these these have been longer. These are, are five to you know ten on a couple of movies. Nice. Where, All right. Uh, like recent example was Army of Dead um, or Army of the Dead on Netflix. I, I that might have been fifteen. It was mm. <laughs> a lot. So he's doing the work for you. We've got scary no. sounds coming from the background uh, in <laughs> yes. the. Uh, in the studio at your house. All right, so as you mentioned, Rob, we get a two-for-one deal here on My Bloody Valentine as it's a horror film, but the narrative is centered around the corporate holiday of Valentine's Day. So, Rob, an interesting fact about this movie, it was originally titled The Secret, but it was changed to My Bloody Valentine to cash in on the popularity of the holiday serial killer trend of the late 1970s. Now, this was on the heels of 1978's Halloween and 1980's Friday the 13th and Prom Night. Now, this is according to Lenny Blake, 
author of the book The Wounds of Nations, Horror Cinema, Historical Trauma, and National Identity. So it seems pretty obvious looking back on it, Rob. Nice to see that Lenny Blake put a name to it, Holiday Serial Killer Trend. Uh, Rob, as as our resident horror expert, first, what is your favorite holiday serial killer movie or franchise? Oh, that's that's a really tough one. It's, as I think I've I've told you in the past, but probably not our audience. Slashers generally aren't the the sort of top tier horror movies I, I get into. So so if I have like a a weakness in my my genre information, it's it's with the slasher uh, subgenre. You know, there there have been a, a a few that I've enjoyed around Christmas time. Um, the Black Christmas and and uh, got even Santa Slays with with huh. Zach Goldberg in that one. <laughs> uh, that that's probably the holiday centric slashers. You know, more the more I've seen have been around Christmas time. I love that now we can just the the holiday serial killer trend. It's you know, a yes, phrase yeah. I never thought I'd say, <laughs> and and there we are, Lenny Blake with I with a. Uh, fantastic uh, book that I actually have on the way now because I'm, I can't wait to dig into that as a as a film theorist myself. So, Rob, we've got a real eclectic group of people responsible for this movie. The film is directed by George Mihalka, who was coming off his directorial debut the prior year with Pickup Summer, which is a USA Up All Night staple, by the way, and one that we might have to revisit this summer. Uh, the tagline for Pickup Summer is "School's out and everything's in," <laughs> so that's fantastic. Love it. <laughs> yes, so we definitely need to circle back to that in May or June of, of next year. Uh, Mihalka would direct a few more features, including the 1985 horror film Eternal Evil, before bouncing back and forth between TV and film. But by far, My Bloody Valentine is his best-known work. But Rob, according to IMDb, Mihalka has a film in development right now, Needles. Wow. So he's still at it. Kudos to him for that. And Needles is described as a hard-boiled tale of a heroin addict or a heroin addicted lawyer thrust into the trial of his life. So maybe a fun f- film noir coming up for Mihalka here. Yeah, maybe. I see he's had a little little gap in his work, but it's yeah, it's interesting that he's still going i credit him that uh my bloody valentine was written by john baird making his screenwriting debut he would have a short career cranking out two more features and a tv movie and that's about it and sadly baird died in 1993 again some names here that are that are not household names even for Mm -hmm. a cult classic uh such as this yeah and the the or i guess the the gentleman accredited with the story concept Stephen Miller actually comes back and writes the seek or the the remake in 2009 the 3d version now was he the only one with ties to that film from the original oh that uh, I didn't dig any deeper I nothing immediately jumped out other than his name We'll circle back around to that remake a little later but yeah so uh, sticking with the original the unfortunate thing about the 1981 version of My Bloody Valentine, Rob, is that it's really a tale of what could have been. So first of all, Mihalka was recruited by producer John Dunning, who co-founded the Canadian film production company Cinepix, which would produce some early work by David Cronenberg, 
1979 produced the Ivan Reitman classic Meatballs. So (laughs) even though the director and writer might have been new to the business, the production team knew what they were doing. They got Tom Berman as the makeup artist here to do the practical effects for the film. And Rob, this was no small feat. Berman's career started as an assistant to the legendary John Chambers on 1968's Planet of the Apes. He worked on 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He even worked for the CIA, creating disguises for agents that needed to get in or out of locations quickly. And last year, in 2020, Berman received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Makeup Artists and Hairstylists Guild. So, I mean, you've got a hot production company here. You've got a young effects artist hitting his prime, a director coming off a promising debut. What could go wrong, right? Exactly. But it did. The man got involved. That's right. The stodgy old Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, reared its head. So the theatrical version and all subsequent releases up until 2009 were actually pared-down versions of the film. The MPAA wouldn't grant My Bloody Valentine an R rating until several minutes of the gore of the film were cut. That explains a lot. It does. So in 2020, Screen Rant covered this saga in declaring that the uncut version of the film is better than the original release. Bradley Harding goes on to explain that after the cuts... Um, made by Paramount Pictures, who distributed the film in the U.S. and Canada, the film looked nothing like the promotional material promised. He points out that uh, uh, when the DVD company Scream Factory released an uncut version, the reaction was overwhelmingly positive, and Harding describes the reinstated footage as, quote, extreme and unforgiving, emphasizes the anger of the killer by adding a layer of menace that was missing from the theatrical cut. End quote. So, Rob, this would be like leaving all the chase scenes in Friday the 13th in with none of the kills. Yeah, I mean, and you see it throughout. I mean, you get just the the briefest glimpses of what appears to be top-notch effects and, and gore work. But, man, does it just blink and you'll miss it. And, and that was one of the sort of the disappointing elements of, of the movie for me. It was... Clearly, effort was put in in a few of these scenes, you know, like, for example, the dryer scene, which you know, yes. we'll probably get into that later. Yep. Like, that looked great, but, yeah, blank, gone. Yeah. And, and now that you've, the MPA get, got involved, it makes perfect sense. They had to trim all that back. And that's why I brought up the, uh, Tom Berman as the makeup artist here, because, yeah, I mean, fantastic-looking effects in this film, most of which were left on the cutting room floor. Bummer. Uh, Harding also pointed out that most of the footage cut were the practical effects by Berman uh, and uh, outlets such as Fangoria gushed over. So, you know, we're removing footage that is important both cinematically and narratively. I mean, a horror film inspired by Halloween and Friday the 13th, but an MPAA that demands that it removes the parts of the movie that make it look like said films. Exactly. It's a recipe for disaster. And that's what happened. The movie grossed $5.7 million total at the box office, while Friday the 13th grossed $5.8 million on its opening weekend 
and then oh. almost 40 million worldwide. So, I mean, perhaps a tale of what might have been if it weren't for those important minutes that ultimately were cut from the theatrical release. I, uh, I have to agree 100% there that that really hampered the film. And I'm, I'm sure why it's, it's garnered such a cult following is people have gotten their hands on that Screen Factory DVD and seen, you know, what was meant to be seen and, and are probably appreciating that and hence it's, you know, continued love after all these years. Uh, That release that I just mentioned, it came on February 11th, 1981, of course, just in time for Valentine's Day, 1981. So (laughs) I have to ask, was young Rob uh, old enough to take a date to the R-rated My Bloody Valentine in 1981? Uh, Well, I was not quite a a horror junkie at that point. Um, I, you know, my horror started... Mostly with creature features, like we had a, a show where I grew up on Saturdays called Creature Double Feature, and they would often split it with like a a Frankenstein, The Mummy, or Dracula movie, and then the next movie would be like a Godzilla movie. And I was there for Godzilla, and my sister was there for you know the Universal monsters, and um, it wasn't until later that I started to, you know, expand into the the other subgenres. So at that point, I, I would not have had any interest in it. But gotcha. I also was was a little too young for a <laughs> rated R movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the budget for the movie is estimated at two point three million dollars. So you know, it's not a loss for Paramount mm-hmm. or for the production companies recouping double that at the box office, but still nowhere near what they were likely hoping for, especially given the momentum that the team had heading into the production of the film. Yeah, and to see where, where you know, sort of that, the slasher genre continued to go. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that could have led to a, a sequel, you know, sooner than the 2009 remake. Yeah, yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that as well when we're talking about the movie itself. Uh, My Bloody Valentine stars Paul Kelman as TJ, and if you're asking who, uh, there, there's nothing I could tell you that would help you place him. Uh, anything yeah, it doesn't you... even have a, a photo on IMDb. Yeah, there so, it is, yeah, the kiss of death. Tells you. <laughs> uh, our scream queen here is Lori Hallier as Sarah, a Canadian actress making her big screen debut with the movie. She has a lengthy TV resume, but mm-hmm. nothing I can place her from. Can you, Rob? No, no. I, I looked through and I was like, well, man, it feels like I should have seen her somewhere else. But most of this stuff I've, I've never even heard of. She even has a nearly 50 episode run on the soap opera Days of Our Lives. And Rob, I'm not embarrassed to say that I used to be an avid watcher of Days of Our Lives. Um, and I still have no memory of her character, Yvette Dupree. <laughs> so <laughs> just can't. Well, heck, she was in the RoboCop TV series. Oh, which wow. I, I watched some of that and yeah. She doesn't yeah, stick out. So, uh, Neil Affleck, no relation to Ben, plays Axel. Um, Affleck has one of the most diverse filmographies that I can remember seeing, doing a bit, bit of everything. Actor, directing seven episodes of The Simpsons and two episodes of Family <laughs> Guy. He's an editor, script and continuity guy, animation department. He even worked on the animation for The Simpsons movie. So a jack of all trades there for, for our Neil Affleck Axel character. 
Uh, my, yeah, the, the, the bit I read about him was that he was, you know, an animator, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then you see, yeah, Simpson, so so mm-hmm. clearly, you know, a skilled animator. Yeah. My Bloody Valentine made its USA Up All Night debut on March 13th, 1993. Coincidentally, Rob, the second film that night was Student Bodies, a film mm-hmm. that we must cover sometime soon. Uh, it, it would air just three more times, airing a fourth and final time as the first film of the night on February 11th, 1995, exactly 14 years after its theatrical debut. Huh. So, fun fact there. All right, Rob, we know the backstory. Now let's jump in to what happens in this movie. Um, a very unique opening sequence to the movie. A couple of faceless miners wearing, you know, gas masks and overalls, trudging deep into a mine, only to have one of them unzip their overalls and reveal that it's a woman, a beautiful blonde. She takes off her mask and then pulls off, pulls the uh, other miner to her and, you know, fondles the hose on his mask and begins <laughs> to unzip his overalls for a Valentine's Day movie. I mean, this thing goes in an erotic direction fast. Yeah, just um, right to work. But wait, uh, the miner then shoves the woman into the wall, piercing her heart with his pickaxe that he left in the wall. Cue the scream and the title card, My Bloody Valentine, with two heart emojis dripping with blood in place of the O's. <laughs> Uh, Rob, what'd you make of this opening sequence? Well, you know, it's the the cardinal sin of slasher movies is you're you're trying to have sex and right there, it's over. You knew right away. That's right. But yeah, the whole uh, as you said, fondling of the <laughs> gas mask hose. <laughs> I thought it was off to a great start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the mine is in the town of Valentine Bluffs dubbed the little town with the big heart according to the city <laughs> sign that we uh, that we see in the ridiculous scene where the miners when they get over done with their shift all these young miners start racing to town to get to the bar um with a music that had to be stolen right out of the dukes of hazard library yeah exactly uh, they're they're rushing back to town because the town is holding the first valentine's day dance in 20 years it's a big deal because well, we don't know at first. Uh, the town mayor kind of teases us, saying, let's try to have fun Saturday night and forget all that other nonsense. But, of course, they can't forget because the mayor gets a mysterious package that looks like a box of Valentine chocolates, but it has a note that reads, from a heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer. Remember what happened as the 14th draws near. And it's a human heart in the box instead of chocolate, leaving the mayor to exclaim, it can't be happening again. Not again. Not again. Not again. So some exposition here that sets up. Uh, we still don't know, uh, but thankfully we don't have to wait very long to find out what it is as he yes. says that. Because the very next scene, we've got all the guys and their girlfriends hanging out at a local bar. We've got a grizzled old bartender named Happy. Who lays <laughs> More out than grizzled, like grumpy is all gas. Oh yeah, uh, he lays out the, all the details of what happened twenty years earlier, and we get a flashback scene uh, that explains how the Valentine's Day dance had been a tradition for over hundred years in Valentine Bluffs, and twenty years earlier, everyone in town was at the at the party already, save for seven workers still at the Hanager Mine, which is kind of the the place that you know the the industry Central that keeps this town yeah. alive, you know, so. Uh, so the, there's two supervisors that were in a hurry to get 
to the party and left five of the men below and a methane explosion trapped them in the mine. So the town searched for six weeks and finally found one of the miners alive, Harry Warden. But he was still alive because he ate the other miners. (laughs) And this was another scene that, again, I agree with Screen Rant in the... There was such a quick, barely, what, a second and a half long, maybe, shot of him eating an arm, like even just nibbling on an arm. Yes. And that was a a very, a a much more extended scene in the original cut, which obviously uh, will come into play and explain. Um, So this, this, the, the lone miner here, Harry Warden, he spent a year in a mental institution. And then the following year, when the town held its annual Valentine's Day dance, he returned to kill the two supervisors responsible for leaving the miners below a year earlier. He tore out their hearts, stuffed them in chocolate candy boxes, and left them at the party with a note, never hold another Valentine's Day dance ever again. And, and legend has it that every year he comes back, pickaxe in hand, to ensure that the town doesn't hold a, van, uh, hold a dance. Now, Rob, as super cheesy as this whole scenario is, I really dig it. I mean, you've got a sympathetic killer, an, a plausible event, the mining accident, a horrific story of a man resorting to cannibalism to stay alive that essentially yeah. turns him into a killer bent on revenge. So what do you think of our inciting event here for the narrative, the backstory of Harry Warden, the miner? Yeah, I'm, I'm there for it. You know, the getting oppressed by the man, you know, left behind because they want to go party while some guys are still working and, you know, it results in catastrophe and, and he does what he can to survive. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd hold a grudge too. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, certainly a little more, um, I, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to frame it. Sympathetic yeah. sort of origin story for the, for the killer. Um, you know, it's a lot of times it's often like a, a abuse of a child or something really, tragic and dramatic like that and this is a little more uh, i just grounded differently and and you know i appreciate that and the timing so this was 20 years ago so these are now all the children of those yes. you know those the the former miners now they're all working down in the mines and uh well, it doesn't take long for Harry to go on a killing spree because he's pretty fired up about this uh, Valentine's Day dance. dance. Happening, yeah. yeah, he starts with the sweet, innocent Mabel, uh, older lady who runs the local laundromat and has been handling the decorations for the upcoming dance. Now, Rob, there's a romantic subplot. Um, we'll get back to Mabel's death here in a minute. I don't want you to think that I'm passing it over, but uh, (laughs) there's a romantic subplot. There's a love triangle between three characters that we mentioned earlier, TJ, Axel, and Sarah. Uh, TJ and Sarah were together, but then TJ left town a while back for some reason that's never revealed. Um, It's just referenced that he went west. So Sarah is now with Axel, and a lot of screen time is dedicated to these three trying to figure out what they're going to do Uh, I did love the scene where Sarah is complaining to her friend Patty that she doesn't even want to go to the dance because of all the drama. And Patty responds with, you got to go. You got to see the dress I've got cut down to here and slid up to here. I may not get out alive. (laughs) I love it because, of course, nice knowing you, Patty. I mean, we know (laughs) at that moment she's going to be part of the uh, body count. Uh, Okay, so Chief Newbie, our chief of police, goes into the laundromat looking for Mabel. 
And as the uh, chief looks around, he's he's just troubled by a disturbing smell. When Mabel's body pops out of the dryer, um, and it's all uh, burned and everything. Now we see the kind of point of view uh, killing earlier, um, and this was another scene that was dramatically cut. And uh, yeah, it had to. Um, I mean, when she, when she pops out of that dryer, I mean, clearly, you know, it's it's basically her her skull comes out skinless um and yeah just so much work had to have been poured into that yeah and you get just the briefest glimpse and and it's it's enough to see that it was good stuff but then it's gone and and i was yeah at that point it was like what 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 was that (laughs) am i not going to get the gore that i sort of expect yeah the slasher movie and well when when chief newbie walked in there i mean i was saying like be in the dryer be in the dryer you know like and i was hoping the dryer was going to be going at least it, it must have recently stopped but uh but yeah we didn't we didn't by by any stretch of the means get get the payoff on well on and, they, and they absolutely foreshadow that too when she is in in the, the previous scene where she's in there she goes to the dryer and checks on some clothes yeah. and Puts them back in there, so yeah, little little things like that you gotta love. They teased it, you're right, and then again, no payoff. So, of yeah. course, we also then get our uh, our Jaws Mayor Vaughn moment, right? Uh, refusing mm-hmm. to close the beach when <laughs> the mayor asks Chief Newbie to call the neighboring town for reinforcements, but of course, the chief doesn't want to panic on his hand and says, "No, no, he's got it handled." So that always works out well in these movies, right, Rob? Well, especially too when, like they know the history and they're and they're both clearly like terrified yeah but oh no gotta keep it quiet <laughs> yeah here uh harry warden even left a note stuffed in mabel's body that reads it happened yeah. once it happened twice hold the dance and it will happen thrice so the mayor finally talks the chief into at least canceling the dance and of course when the chief tells the kids no dance no parties yeah got that you know exactly what they're gonna do uh the kids head back and and that was a a part of the movie that like i assumed kind of just coming in that they're like they're kids but i don't think they really are like i you know to be working the mine and stuff like that like okay they've they've graduated high school but i have no idea like there were there were two things in the movie that sort of I, I struggled with in that because I think you know most of the actors were in their 30s, mm-hmm. uh, so you know you you have trouble sort of gauging their age at that point of what they're supposed to be in the movie. And there were initially so many of them, I didn't know who was who. Yes, you know it even took me a while to you know other than I think Sarah's called out pretty quickly in the movie, but who was TJ and who was Axel? I you know I couldn't. Yeah, so I, that was a, a, I guess, a stumbling point for me throughout the movie as to who, when someone was being referenced, I was like, "Damn it, who are they talking about?" It, yeah, it took a lot of trips to IMDb to figure yeah, out who was yeah. who as well. And you know, this is a 1981 Canadian movie. There's not a lot of diversity. There's no diversity in this movie, and well, and no familiar faces. No familiar to faces kind of cling to right. as well. Yeah. So it was difficult to, to kind of to, to, to do that. So, you know, the kids head back to the bar to figure out what they're going to do on Valentine's Day and decide to throw a Valentine's party at the mine. So, Rob... All places, just the best location yeah, in terms of safety. It should be noted, TJ's father owns the mine. So that's the, that's why they have all the access to it as well and everything. So, But 
you know, we've got a Footloose situation on our hand here too, Rob. Three years before Footloose, right? I mean, it's like when they throw the dance outside, uh, you know, county lines, right on the edge yes, of the county, yes. in, in an old uh, in in the seed house. So this this is the same same situation. So I, I was there for that. Um, also in this bar scene, uh, Happy the bartender again tries to warn the kids about Harry in a very aggressive yeah. way. Again, yeah, yeah, almost making threats. It could be yeah. you next. Which um, there was a point where I was like, "Is it going to turn out to be him?" Like he's really getting aggressive with that. At this point, I wanted that too. I wanted Happy to be Harry the Miner, but. In the very next scene, Rob, we find out that's not the case because yep. Happy sets up a minor suit with a pickaxe attached to a rope on a pulley system that kind of lifts when the door to a shed by the mine, I think. I'm not sure where, where he was, but um, it you know pulls up, meant, meant to scare the kids. And he's like, this will scare them. And, you know, um, but then Harry kills him and, and drags him away. And it was disheartening for me, Rob, because, I mean, Happy was the only one in town that seemed to respect the legend of Harry Warden and what he was trying to accomplish. You know, it's like having yep. one fan and then killing your only fan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is where I have to appreciate the, the, you know, slasher trope of the speed at which the, you know, the killer moves. Like, so he sets up this elaborate sort of uh, oh, scarecrow yeah. trap and in seconds he dismantles the trap and takes the trap's place and does the killing. Yeah, Happy's then, opening the door to test yeah. it out and then opens it again, haha, and then opens it again, and there's the killer. <laughs> and then we also get it a couple times when he we when he puts out candy boxes with hearts and poems in them. It's like how's he how's he getting from like the the bottom of the mine back into town to plant this you know, chocolate box to then get back to the mine to do some more killing while wearing a gas mask and lugging a pickaxe, mind you. Yes. So. And I, I do have to say, I appreciated the, the, the miner as a, as a killer, like the sort of Darth Vader esque yes. breathing, sort of the POV shots you get from him. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, a pickaxe is, you've got to think, <laughs> you know, a rough way to get taken out. Yeah. So he was, he was suitably menacing and, and yeah, I like what they did with with the shots from his perspective and the breathing and stuff like that. So yeah, a, a good what could have been you know more than a you know one movie slash remake. You know, there could have been more wrong from this. I think. Yeah, very menacing character. The black. I don't even know what you'd call what he's wearing, but like a miner's kind of protective suit, like almost like a rubber black rubber suit sort of. Yeah, it's it's like a um you know, a, a bodysuit yeah. uh, with a gas mask and then the traditional sort of miner's helmet. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, okay, so the chief and the mayor are trying to find out at this point what happened to Harry Warden because he's supposed to be in this institution. Uh, the institution say they have no record uh, of him, meaning that he's either been transferred or dead. And, um, you know, you got to remember, and I love this too, with uh, movies made back in 1981, pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-everything, where she had, you know, she said it'd take a couple of days. I've got to go check out the microfilm. Yeah, you know. microfiche. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I like that, that you, that's an element that's lost in today's horror films. So that was um, that element of, of having to wait is, yeah, was, it's, is it's, usually it's, perfect for a narrative back then. Well, it's got to be, you know, it's, it's a whole element in, in today's movies of, of either sort of 
brazenly setting up a scenario where nobody's phone works, there yeah. is no internet, <laughs> or you have to like you know work extra hard to to figure out a scenario where all that fails. That's you know somewhat believable, and and so yeah, sort of <laughs> times were a bit easier than yes. when. I mean, we I think we see it at one point, sort of related but unrelated, where the <laughs> police chief is is driving to the mine, gets a phone call that you know someone called the office and said it's emergency. So he has to turn around and go back to the office. <laughs> so at this point, Harry and any record of him has, they mysteriously vanished. Uh, meanwhile, the kids, they have their party. They're at that kind of lounge of the mine. There is some really clever production design here, Rob. I don't know how much of it you, you picked up on. At one point, one of the gals, Sylvia, leaves with John again names that <laughs> mean nothing to just <laughs> yeah. you know but but that's who they were and somebody says as they're walking out Sylvie is going to get it tonight as they pass the doorway there's signs on the door that read for safety's sake point out hazards which of course there's a killer on the loose and nobody told them and then another sign reads your blood is vital and it's a sign oh, for blood one. donations. But just, yeah, the double meaning here is so thick. Um, and you see this a lot. Did you catch any other kind of clever production elements in the movie? I did, but but I, I, I don't think I noted any of them. And nothing is jumping out to my memory. But I did remember seeing a, a couple instances of signs up where, like, clearly, you know, someone was paying attention yeah. and, and put this stuff up. And, and, you know, I love that. Just like, as you indicated before, the whole poem aspect I, I had hoped there would be a few more in the movie because i dug that part it, mm-hmm. you know it, it added some character to the film and and uh you know we, we did get a handful but I, I i guess i expected um a little bit more of that yeah all right so apparently harry's officially at the party because uh, a guy named dave <laughs> Uh, goes into the back, into the kitchen, and uh, looking for hot dogs. And Harry shoves Dave's head into a boiling pot of water in the kitchen. Uh, and again, you know, you referenced it earlier. We can say all these names, but they're interchangeable and indispensable. They're just fodder for the killer. Uh, but this was another scene that was cut down. Uh, and I, I, yeah, as soon as you said that before, I figured this was one. Because we get almost nothing from this one. Right. And apparently there was quite a quite a bit of... of what happened to poor Dave, you know, as his face boiled away in, in a pot of water. Uh, and, and we do get a glimpse of him in the, the fridge or yeah. freezer or fridge freezer. Yeah. I, you know, he looked frozen, but I think it was a fridge, but that gave a hint to that. And I was like, man, where was the, the connective piece right. there of the, the initial aftermath to then see him, you know, cooled down. Thanks MPAA. Yeah. For thanks. ruining it. Uh, meanwhile, another chocolate box delivery, another body part, this time the front of the police station to Chief Newby. Again, there's that speed of how did the killer get from <laughs> yes. the tar- party to the... And the note says, you didn't stop the party. And it's great because Newby's like, party? What? <laughs> like He has no idea what's going on. So uh, the do-nothing, go-nowhere love triangle between TJ, Axel, and Sarah finally comes to a head in a fight between TJ and Axel at the party until... Hollis breaks it up. Now, Rob, we haven't talked about the Hollis character yet. Um, he's the big, you know, fun-loving buddy that we've he's seen. He's the, like, the only other character out of the Central Three that I quickly figured out who he was. Like, he, he's yeah. just, and, and likely because 
you know, he was a little bit heavier and had the, the awesome mustache. So he sort of stood out relative to everyone else. Yeah. So earlier in the movie, you know, he had the gang cooking TV dinners on a car engine in a junkyard. Yes, that's right. uh, you know, he's the he's the very tropish, you know, big fun loving guy. Yeah, he, he looks like a beefy Rob Reiner uh, in this movie. <laughs> he does. Uh, Hollis was played by Keith Knight, who made his acting debut two years prior to this as Fink in Meatballs. Oh, oh man! Yeah. Wow. Yep. So that's probably why he looked a little bit more recognizable as well. So the connection to producer John Dunning is there as well. Um, sadly, Knight passed away in 2007 at the age of 51, but he had a lengthy TV career. So, uh, he was a great character in this. I loved, loved, uh, every scene that he was in. Well, and I love too, that they like gave him like traditionally that character is, is the single one and they gave him a girlfriend and, yeah. and they, and, and it seemed like they, you know, they really liked each other, like relative to all the other sort of sort of relationships that appeared to be more hookups or the love triangle if he he was in a relationship yeah instead of so, being yeah, like I, slovenly yeah. beer drinker he was the peacekeeper had a girl exactly. he was a lover yeah. yeah all right so as expected sylvia is killed when her man john leaves her alone in the shower area to go get some beers and uh, everything about this scene was hilarious one the um you know they're making out and then she's like you know what would make this even better and he pulls out a condom and she's like no beers and he's like i'll go get some and she's like i'll come with and he's like no you stay (laughs) it's like you stay here alone in this creepy mine yeah no we gotta split up right exactly which so then um of course harry shows up and then there's a equally hilarious scene where you know she keeps hearing all this noise and she's you're trying to get out of the shower area and, and all the miners like uh, suits are hanging up and she's like getting trapped in them and like, can't, can't get around. And it's just, it came off as kind of funny to me, just the way she was having yes. trouble moving around there. And, and then I she, wonder if, if that's like, is that a real thing? Do they hang their yeah. uniforms up in the ceiling and have to pull strings to make them drop? Well, maybe that's how, I mean, maybe they spray them down. Because, you know, they get, like, the lime dust and everything on yeah, them. So maybe true. they that's do. I mean, it was shot in a real mine. So, um, Which, I, I don't know if you saw the note that they, uh, when they, um, like, rented the location, the company that owned the mine went in and cleaned it. So when oh. they then showed up, they were like, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> what have you done? What happened here? Yeah. Uh, well, because in that scene, uh, Sylvia eventually gets impaled on a shower, on a water pipe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's which I'm sure that was cut too. Oh, big time! So because the yeah. angle they took oh, when, when it's revealed, so you see nothing. Yeah. Well, that that was a cool shot because there's water shooting out of her open mouth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's shot from the side, and um, and yeah, this the the um, the edited version had a lot. Okay, so. Uh, the website moviecensorship.com did a comparison of the original and unedited version of the oh. film, Rob. And so thank you very much to them. They actually provide screenshots of the different oh, versions. Wow. Yeah. And so not surprisingly, this scene is much more graphic in the unedited version, including seeing the pipe running through Sylvia's body as she hangs from it. And then like a stream of blood running down towards Harry's feet after he kills her. So we'll post a link to that site on Twitter. It's a great breakdown of the differences. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure, I mean, that that's like an inventive kill right there that could have, you know, lended to the movie entirely. You know, I mean, that's what, what people generally come to for these is, hey, right. how, what are the different ways that people are going to get taken out? And And that's a new one for me. So the girls at the party decide that they want a to get a tour of the mine, and uh, after a few tickles from his girl Patty, Hollis, Hollis agrees to take a small group down into the mine. So things start to pick up here. Uh, rising action begins to build. Dave's severed head is discovered in the kitchen. Axel bursts into the main room of the lounge where the party is, yelling, Dave is dead, while John stumbles back in, telling everybody about Sylvia being killed. So it's finally discovered that Harry Warden is back to the kids, and he's at the mine. So TJ and Axel take control, ordering everyone out of the mine, and they head down to look for Sarah and the others. There's a really cool shot, Rob, of... uh, looking up into the mine shaft as TJ and Axel take the elevator down into the mine. Your director of photography for this film is Rodney Gibbons. So he was the the DP on uh, Mihalko's Pickup Summer a year earlier. Uh, A lengthy cinematography and directing filmography for Gibbons. Nothing that stood out. Uh, He did direct 1995's Screamers and uh, also a lot of tv work but uh, yeah i thought the cinematography on this film was uh, was pretty cool uh, nothing groundbreaking uh, but for an up all night film of course the production value as a whole including the cinematography was was pretty good yeah i mean particularly once in the mine they had a lot of just interesting shots down the corridors and as you said up the shaft and yeah i, I liked that that aspect of it We'll circle back to to your point right there a little later as well. So TJ finally finds part of the group down in the mine, but they've lost Mike and Harriet. Who I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, Just a couple that, that split off for some action. Yeah, so. they've gone off to do it, and so Hollis goes off looking for them, and he finds them impaled and dead, and then he takes a nail gun to the head. Yeah, so multiple ah, multiple times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> multiple and. Uh, so, darn it, that's going to do it for Hollis. Uh, Axel, TJ, Patty, and Sarah make it to the mineshaft elevators to find that Harry has cut the wires. Uh, so they have to climb. And as they're climbing, Howard's body drops down on a rope that splats blood all over them. That was a really well, cool... Well, because it, it decapitated. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it did. I wasn't sure. It all happened yeah, so it, quickly. But yeah. I, I thought his head like then bloop, went flying Popped off. off. Yeah. yeah. All right, so that's it for the climbing. Uh, the new plan now is to make it to the rail cars. Uh, and along the way, Axel is picked off by Harry. Uh, his death occurs off screen, but he was presumably dropped into 60 feet of water. And we see like his mask with the light you know, dropping down. <laughs> down and, yeah, bubbles coming up. So we've got TJ and the girls left. Uh, TJ sends the girls on while he goes down another tunnel for some reason. And then we hear a bunch of crashes. And, you know, it's presumed that he's supposed to be dead, but it's like, okay, this is one of the protagonists of the film, so we know that he's not going to be dead. Yeah. yeah. Um, the girls continue on, and um, Patty, as she prophesied earlier, <laughs> takes a pickaxe to the stomach from Harry. Uh, she's the one that said, I don't think I'll make it out alive. No. Um, which, leaving only Sarah, but wait, of course, swerve, TJ is still TJ alive. TJ is still alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he grabs Sarah, and they jump onto the moving train cars with Harry Warden following. 
And finally, we get a Family Guy Peter Griffin versus the chicken <laughs> sequence. Well, uh, just prior to that, on on the rail cars, we get like a Scooby Doo uh, <laughs> sort of style montage. Right. Everyone moving from rail car to rail. Well, car that's what. It, yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's a pickaxe versus shovel. Shovel, um, yeah. Right. So finally, just as Harry is about to stab TJ. Sarah pulls off Harry's miner's mask, so it's funny that you mentioned Scooby-Doo, because mm-hmm. surprise, it's not Harry Warden at all. It's, it's Axel. Axel, who just died off screen a few minutes earlier. The, I was a little disappointed into the... They kind of ruined the the big <laughs> shock there by not showing... But, okay. Uh, but then, so we get like a two-second flashback of Axel. Yeah. Yeah, as Axel as a young child watching Harry Warden kill his father, who was one of the two men responsible for leaving the miners down in the shaft. And it because... It, it, but even that piece has to kind of get said by someone. Yes. To, to kind of close that loop. The chief, at, the kids made it back to the... Uh, police station and and told the chief where the party was so the chief and reinforcements eventually show up and he's the one that says when you know when they see it's axel too and they're like oh oh and yeah i can't remember how he said it but it was it was yeah. such a terrible piece of exposition like why why are you coming back to explain this after it already happened yeah there's i mean there's a lot I'm, there's a I'm, there's a lot to be problematic here. I mean, okay, yeah, so yeah. it happened on Valentine's Day. His that Axel's father died on Valentine's Day, and Axel was mad. I guess that they weren't being respectful of his father's death. Um, so uh, two things. I, I Rob, I kept waiting for this moment with with all the off-screen deaths that we kept seeing. Yeah, you know, I was I would it was. You were waiting for Harry not to be Harry, right? Yeah, oh, ab- absolutely. It just was you. You really didn't get any anything throughout the movie leading you anywhere. Uh, you know, other than the super grumpy bartender, <laughs> there there were no no Oops. hints. I, you know, I feel like and no indication of who it potentially could be. So I was waiting for something sort of out of left field. Yeah. Um, but was you know, I guess not. Didn't think it would end up being Axel. Um, and then, second, given the, well, also uh, the the entire movie, I kept wondering how did Harry Warden, the crazy old miner who escaped from a mental institution, how did he get an attractive uh, young blonde to cosplay down in the mine in the in that cold <laughs> open? Um, oh, you're thinking way too much. But about <laughs> now we know it. It was Axel, so at least that does make sense. I mean, yeah, young, yeah. handsome guy can can you know, lure a, a gal down there. But then, second here, uh, given the time dedicated to the drawn out sequence that we at the end that we just talked about, Peter Griffin versus the chicken Scooby Doo yeah, yeah. on the mine on the mine cars. You know, I'm disappointed, so disappointed that we just got a mere flashback that is supposed to justify this huge twist at the end. You know, where's the monologue from Axel uh, explaining why? Um, it's just- uh, you know, and, and the only only indication of of sort of anything was his cackling yeah. as you know he vanishes down the mine shaft. That a, apparently he's just loony. You know, Which I guess that explains it all. He's crazy, but but he's clearly not because we've seen him act in this very well, uh, 
specific fashion the entire film. Yeah, it, it, it upon you know analysis, it it's a very weak and yeah. And, yeah. and tenuous sort of justification for slaughtering all his friends that they you know apparently having a dance disrespects the death of his father i I don't know it would have been nice to cut out all of the uh love triangle stuff that we saw throughout the movie with tj and sarah and axel because that's that served no impetus for that that didn't that wasn't motivating his killing Yeah. Uh, yeah and so in, when they were in the bar and Axel was in the bar, all the times Happy was talking about the killer, uh, the guy that killed his dad, you know, at least he could have said something like, hey, respect the, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, let's tr- change the subject or something, but nothing, no hint whatsoever. Um, yeah, like he could have thrown in something about it's also the anniversary of yeah. Axel's, you know, dad's passing, you know, something or, or in a in a sidebar mumbled something about that to to drop a little nugget for us yeah big, big time missed opportunities here at the end but again you, you you really needed to build up to that as well but we finally we do get something you just referenced it, it they, they were digging through the rubble because they thought axel was dead he's alive he escapes to another tunnel while laughing maniacally asking sarah to be his bloody valentine and saying that he's coming for harry and the whole town is going to die and v- was he missing an arm yes he okay, was. I, I I thought that's what I was supposed to take away from that, but I was kind of like, wait a second, is he? Yeah, and I believe that's kind of leading to this maniacal switch. Here was now he's yeah. you know he's limbless. He's been you know injured in the because the you know the cave kind of came down around him. Yeah. Uh, very creepy ending. I, I did love that part and yes, uh, yeah. and set up a what should have been a sequel perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, but again on the heels of a drawn out climax that just didn't work. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, Rob, this uh, this episode's film is more well known than some of the others that we do on this podcast. So we have both a tomato meter score and an audience score for My Bloody Valentine. So let's find out what others are saying about this film. Rob, what do you think out of a hundred? The tomato meter score, which is the rankings by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes for My Bloody Valentine. Uh, you know, and I'm gonna. But intentionally go high on this one because I think, as I sort of alluded to earlier, that it it's probably altered because people have seen the real movie. So maybe I, so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go sixty percent on it. This is your jam, the the horror genre. I said it. You're the expert. It currently has a critic rating of fifty eight. Okay. So two off, yeah. All right, so Trace Thurman of the Horror Queers podcast gave it three out of five and writes, earns points for being a more mature slasher than others of the time, but most of the human drama feels superfluous. I couldn't yeah. agree more. Um, yeah. I, you know, I said it, the love triangle seems out of place, and uh, you know, it's only there to kind of add to the shock value of Axel being the killer at the end, which yeah, wasn't even exactly. needed because there wasn't any mention of jealousy when he is discovered as the killer. So uh, Zach Handlin of the AV club writes director George Mihalka gets effectively naturalistic performance out of his leads as well as an intermittently eerie mood. But ultimately it's a movie enjoyed for what it could have been than what it actually is. So, I mean, the critics are on it. 
this is why they're critics. This is what they do. And uh, spot on there from uh, Zach Hanlon as well, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, mixed reviews from critics. How about the fans, Rob? What do you think of the fan score is out of 100 for this film with more than 5,000 reviews? Oh, that's... Generally, that's higher. I, I'll give that a, a 70% then. So a surprising... Really surprising. 52%. Whoa. But now, Whoa. you got to remember, think about how the little access to the unedited version. Oh, that's, yeah. Yeah, I should have um, I, I gone the same route. And I thought it would have been higher, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, super reviewer Mark B gives it three and a half stars, and he's rating the uncut version. So, I love that they drop in which version they did watch. Uh, yeah. He writes, this was pure B-movie cheese, which was seriously enhanced by some great kill scenes. I watched this originally streaming and was unimpressed. The Blu-ray uncut version, very fun. The scenes in the mine were the most interesting and should have been at least 50% of the movie, a la The Descent. An extra star for the cool mine uniform, which was the creepiest thing in the whole movie. So, a couple things here. Again, Rob, I love it when the reviewers just jam with what we talked about. You didn't even <laughs> yeah. read that review and you referenced about how cool the uniform was. Uh, and then, yeah, we, I said, we'd circle back to this. What do you think about that? More mind scenes for this movie? Uh, to an extent. I mean, that, that's tough. Cause I mean, we saw what they went through with him having to, to trash the elevator so they couldn't get out. And uh, I certainly feel like the movie could have had a little bit more time down in there relative to what we got but it's it's hard without you know going all in a la the descent where you know 95 percent of the movie takes place in these caves you know it's, it's hard to to find that balance of of the two but yeah this one could have used a little bit more of the mind because as we said those shots tend to be the the most interesting and and certainly lended to the the creepy atmosphere and and uh seeing the the different like components of the mind where the the places where you know the people you know showered and and did their stuff but then obviously the work areas and there were some work areas you shouldn't go to and and then the you know the bridge with the water yeah that that all that stuff added a lot to the movie and the, the effectiveness of being stalked by a slasher yeah i love that this was shot on location in an actual mine i think that yeah. really really added to to the mise-en-scene of the film, the, the realism of the film. All right, so Greg B. gives it three stars and hilariously writes, best Moosehead beer commercial I've ever seen. <laughs> there was a... I have a note <laughs> in my notes about the the beer cans looking like soup cans. Oh, yeah. Did you pick up on that? Well, that's what they used to look like, yeah. Did they? Yeah, the pull tabs, the pop tops. Well, no, like just the, the, the can itself. Yeah seemed way more robust than yeah i think they were just squared off then where they're kind of rounded off now at the top they used to be just kind of (laughs) squared off the top yeah and there was a lot of moose head in this movie Um, yeah there was a ton i mean i wonder if canadian companies were more film friendly i mean remember this was back in the 80s where product placement wasn't near as prominent as it is today in fact it was the opposite where you know now you're getting uh, products paying to have their movies, their their products put in movies, whereas it used to be the other way around. You want to have a Coke in your movie, you got to pay Coke. Yeah. So where um, I just totally see the 
them being like, yeah, we all like this beer, so throw it in there. Yeah, it's they're Canadians. I mean, they love beer. Yeah, Maybe exactly. there's probably something written in Canadian statutes where you can just you know put Moosehead beer in any film. Doesn't matter, eh? Sure. <laughs> um, all right, and then one reviewer wondered if the kills made sense considering where the killer was located, meaning where was Axel during all of these kills. Uh, Rob, I didn't notice, nor do I plan to go back and watch uh, to answer this question. But a valid point, and I'm sure somebody's it, it done is, the yeah. math on this. I, and and that's something. Once he's revealed, I you know immediately start thinking about, it, and nothing jumped out at me, you know, as being blatantly implausible. But it, it would require a second watch to really dive into that i mean you already pointed out the speed in which you thought harry warden got from place to place now you throw the but fact that it's axel it's getting from place yeah. to place and in and out of his minor suit <laughs> yeah uh, uh, and and they there's a couple scenes in the in the remake that are that just rip that screen down where someone you know walks off screen it comes back dressed normal and, and you're like and when then when the reveal happens, you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the remake because you had a chance to at least watch a little of it. You know, what you I, I, I watched the whole you watch the whole thing. thing. Okay. So, you know, we, we said that this was obviously set up for what they were hoping was was going to be a sequel. They never got it, and then the the 2009 film was a remake, not a not. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Very much a remake, and it, and it it directly lifts certain scenes um it it keeps sort of the general plot of the movie with some twists and turns for originality um unfortunately they entirely drop the poems um he still does the the heart in the candy box but there are no awesome little poems associated with it and and it's a um a, you know a, a different sort of like Sarah and Axel are married and they have a kid and Tom ends up getting so um, sort of shook by the original incident that because he is a minor and it's sort of linked that it could the the um, there's an explosion in the mine that ends up trapping the miners and it's kind of hinted that it was his fault or could have been his fault. Okay. So he's so shooken by that. He just leaves town and you learn he's spends time in a, in a mental institute trying to, to get over that, that it could be his fault. Um, but yeah, the, you know, like they lift the entire scene where, um, the uniforms are dropping from the ceiling, um, and, and instead of like, you're not led this time to believe that the minor, uh, was a cannibal in, and it's only for six days that they're trapped. He just murders everyone and ends up in a coma. And, and I, I don't even remember how he ends up in a coma. And that's where this movie starts is he's in a coma and awakens from the coma and, it essentially murders the entire floor of the hospital he's on in his escape, um, putting the body count of this one in the first five minutes hmm. higher than than the original. And and one of the things too that's also sort of hampering this one is they went the 3D route, ah. which you know obviously I'm not watching it in 3D on my TV, so I don't I can't speak to how effective that was, but we know sort of generally yeah. how effective those movies are. Um, I would say the acting in this one is for the most part worse. Um, a, a few standouts like 
the the Tom Atkins plays um, you know a, a key role as the sheriff, and he's just just fun in everything he does. Um, but like Jensen Ackles, the guy from Supernatural, is is Tom, and Kerr Smith is Axel, and and I, I remember him from Dawson's Creek. Yeah, yeah. And that's about all I remember him from. Yeah. I know he's been in more stuff. And then Jamie King plays Sarah, and and I've seen her in a few things, and I, I think she originally started as a model. Um, it's relative to the version we saw. It's far far gorier, um, you know, and, and the three D lends to that. Um, there's also a, a, an odd scene that just sticks out, even even for the time. This was 2009 of extended full frontal nudity mm-hmm. of, of of a character, and I just I think the longest sequence of any rated R movie I think I've ever seen where this woman is just, you know, goes from a a motel room out into the parking lot, back into the motel room, you know, through the whole, like trying to survive being chased by the the minor and before she's finally murdered. Um, Yeah. It's just, it's a worse film. And I, and I would imagine relative to the uncut original, a far worse film. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the twist this time if, I don't know if I should go into spoilers. Um, is that it's actually Tom? Ah, okay. So he he is crazy and is having visions of uh, uh, what's his name? Is it Harold? Harry. Yeah, Harry Warden ha- having visions of Harry Warden. So sort of disassociates himself from actually being the one to okay. <laughs> to kill people. So it's... But a big part of it is the mystery of of they're trying to. You know, uh, Axel says it's Tom, and Tom says it's Axel, and Sarah is stuck in the middle of what mm-hmm. do I do? Who do I believe? And and turns out Axel's still a, a pos. He's totally having an affair on Sarah. And um, so either movie, so, and Axel's just <laughs> the yeah, worst. Just, yeah, he's the worst. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, so Christmas uh, for Rob is over. Uh, you oh, both- and and the sequel totally doesn't have the ballad of harry warden okay yeah so uh, we'll we'll come around to that in a minute here so well let's talk a little bit about that so yeah as as tied in like just as uh axel is cackling uh maniacally yelling that everyone's going to die uh we get if jim croce was ever hired to do a horror film soundtrack (laughs) It might sound a little something like the the song that plays at the end, um, and yeah, the, the, literally the ballad of Harry Warden is the name of this song, and it's. I mean, we've joked before about uh, in these types of movies the, the, that we watch on this for this podcast, where it's you know explicitly telling you the action that's happening on screen, but it, it, you don't get those in slasher films. But you this did in this. We, we get an actual ode. Yes. You know, it's just, and, and I mean, I was 100% all in on it. It's yeah. A, I, I thought it was a great song. And, and I, I it, as, as you said, sort of the, it evokes certain people. So I was like, man, who is that? And and turns out I, it's not anybody I'm familiar with. He's a Scottish Canadian uh, singer who's like best known for singing Danny Boy. Huh. Uh, but. Great. But I loved it. I, yeah. I, I sat through the credits listening to it because I wanted to hear the song. Uh, you know, Happy was the one that drove that train of the legend of 
Harry Warden. And so mm-hmm. I, I wish you got more of that throughout the movie as well. And, and, but yeah, the, the, the ballad there was, this was just fantastic. Um, all right. So you've opened all your presents, uh, Rob, it's time to answer the question. Is this movie worth staying up all night for? I, I would say if you're going to do it, see the, the unedited, uh, you know, I guess that would be unrated version. I, I would be, I, I would like to see that one to see, you know, what we missed out on. Uh, but as in the current form, the version we watched, I, I don't think so. I don't think there's okay. enough there. I did enjoy the film, even though it was predictable. Uh, it was certainly a different take on the genre. I liked the single location, the backstory. The killer wasn't supernatural with superhuman strength. You know, it was just a tragedy, although that's what we thought anyway. Uh, yeah, the yeah. twist at the end, eh, I mean, like, I kind of felt for Harry Warden, uh, but I didn't, mm-hmm. I, I certainly didn't think that he should have been killing the whole town. Uh, but <laughs> I was also sad. Uh, to find out that he'd simply died in the institution. Uh, we didn't reference that, but they eventually found out that he died five years early. Um, and uh, they kind of revealed that after, uh, right, or right as they were revealing, you know, that it was Axel instead. So, yeah, I mean, I'm most sad that, uh, you know, this film was considered a bomb. There's 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 a lot of meat left on the bone. <laughs> yeah, hell, yeah. Literally, because they didn't show any of the meat coming off the bone as they should have. Um and, uh, you know, our, the crazed wounded killer runs off at the end. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe Harry wasn't dead at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe they, 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 they still Axel finds him. But uh, we'll never know because they didn't get the chance to make 12 more films like Halloween's and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street's got to. So uh, yeah, I, in, the, in the 2009 version, they, they wrapped that up a little a little neater. Like there's a they. um the police end up, you know, similar to the first one, going into the mine and, and, uh, you know, shooting Harry and he takes off through the mine and they chase him and they end up like he finds an escape hatch Hmm. and they end up sort of secretly killing him just outside of that and burying him in the woods. And it's, it's Tom who returns to the woods and digs up the grave to get the old pickaxe and, and minor uniform to resume. Nice. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say, obviously, if you can get your hands on the unedited version, definitely. But even if you have the edited version that's available in in certain streaming places, it's worth staying up all night for. Dare I call it the working man's horror film? I mean, with our (laughs) miner that's stalking the (laughs) town in his overalls and gas mask and an ominous look. I mean, you, you referenced it earlier, the cool point of view shot opportunities that we that we had complete with heavy breathing through the gas mask. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be great to have access to the unedited version and, and I definitely want to track that down at some point. So, all right, that's going to do it for my bloody Valentine and happy Halloween to everyone. Uh, if you're looking for a twist on the classic genre, I say check out this film. Rob says make sure you get the unedited version, but just don't just don't go down into the mines at all. And if you do, at least bring a friend, a cool friend like Hollis. Um, and there you go. Words of wisdom this Halloween season. Uh, and as always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Still Up Podcast. We'll post some of the links. Uh, that we referenced in this film and we'll leave you with the ballad of Harry Warden. Hell yeah. Once upon a time 
on a sad valentine in a place known as Hanegar Mine. A legend began every woman and man would always remember the time. And those who remained were never the same. You could see the fear in their eyes. Once every year, as the 14th draws near, there's a hush all over the town. Or the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. Twenty years came and went, and everyone spent the 14th in quiet regret. And those still alive know the secret survives in the darkness that looms in the night. For the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. In this little town, when the 14th comes round, there's a silence and fear in the air. Remember the morn that the legend was born All the shock and the horror was there Or oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago.